This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to NL Interviews. Hello, hello, hello. Namaskar. Welcome to NL Interviews. I'm Birad Swain. Today we have a very special guest, the three-time U.S. Senator from South Dakota, Larry Pressler. Pressler is the first Vietnam War veteran to be elected to the Senate. He has been chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, responsible for the Pressler Amendment, also responsible for the Telecommunication Act, and for children of this generation, if the internet is spreading in the quantum and quality that it is now, that we owe a lot to the Telecom Act. He's joining us via Skype from the US. Why are we talking to him today? Because his book, Neighbors in Arms, An American Senator's Quest for Disarmament in a Nuclear Subcontinent, has just come out, published by the Penguin Random House India. Interesting time for a book like this. Why? Because just this month, 122 member states, that is two-thirds of the United Nations, have voted for complete elimination of nuclear weapons. Indo-Pak relations are going through a very big chill and hyper-nationalism in its vogue. So before we start the interview, for our listeners, please remember, shows like this are possible because of independent media. Please support independent media, please support News Laundry, or any independent media of your choice, basically. Help us to keep news independent. Welcome to the show, Mr. Pressler. Thank you very much. I'm very honored to be here. Congratulations for the book from Team News Laundry and all our listeners. Yes. Your book covers a vast time and space, epic in its scope from 1974 till date in terms of foreign policy narrative. And the geopolitics is equally vast from U.S., England to Vietnam, back to U.S. and South Asia, the subcontinent that is our region. But before we come to our region, let's go to Vietnam War first. So as an exceptionally bright student from a very humble background of farming community in South Dakota, you, Senator Pressler, managed to get, into the, get the super prestigious Rhodes Scholarship and landed yourself in Oxford. Our planning commission deputy chairman, Montek Singh Ahluwalia, and the two-term Pakistan president, Wasim Sajjad, were your classmates. I presume also Rhodes Scholars. But before we come to our region, let's go to Vietnam War first. So as an exceptionally bright student from a very humble background of farming community in South Dakota, you managed to get the super prestigious Rhodes Scholarship and landed in Oxford, our planning commission deputy chair, Montek Singh Ahluwalia, and the two-term Pakistan president, Wasim Sajjad, were your classmates. You had the opportunity of escaping serving in Vietnam War, yet you went there. And you also refused the gallantry medal of Purple Heart. But the killing fields, the administration's lies, left you scarred forever. Yet, when you returned to US and enrolled in Harvard, you resented being treated as an accomplice in America's illicit war on Vietnam by your own classmates. Uh, there's a passage, very powerful passage, uh, where you are leading this inspection team to do a body count. Can you read that passage? It's in the unproofed copy. It's in page number 123, um, where you were talking about what you saw in terms of body count, and then you're also talking about what you saw in the convalescent center amongst your comrades. If you can read those two paragraphs for our listeners. Yes, yes. So it's page 153, did you say? Um, it's page 20, 123 in the unproofed copy. Uh, okay, yes, I've got it right here. Just a second yeah. now. So can you start from what, what I saw during the mission was seared forever in my mind's eye? 
Can you start from there? Teams of Vietnamese soldiers and some American advisors were dispatched into the field to provide eyewitness accounts. I accompanied one of these teams. What I saw during that mission was seared forever in my mind's eye. Dozens of dead Vietnamese, if it is impossible to tell whether they were VCs, that means Viet Cong, or civilians, their brains spilled out of their broken skulls, their teeth scattered on blood-soaked ground, and worse, much, much worse. The sights that met me at the convalescent center were just as horrific as those in the battlefield. I saw soldiers and Marines with empty eye sockets and half their faces blown away. Some of the men were in such horrible condition that they were kept strapped down in induced comas until they could be evacuated to better equip military hospitals in Japan and the Philippines. All of these encounters resulted uh, in no, my no, having... We, you can just stop at Japan and Philippines. Can you read that last line again? Some of the men were in such horrible condition. Yes. Some of the men were in such horrible conditions that they were kept strapped down and in induced comas until they could be evacuated to better equip military hospitals in Japan and the Philippines. It's a very powerful paragraph. It gave me goose flesh the first time I read it. Now when you're reading it, it's giving me goose flesh again. Talk to us about your feelings of the Vietnam War. Did it change you forever and how did it impact you? Yes, I guess it did. I just had, I just had some discussions this weekend with other Vietnam veterans and it did. It was a horrific scenes over there and um, it was a war that we should not have fought uh, and we didn't get any results and we fought too, just like it since, by the way. We don't seem to learn from our mistakes. But um, uh, it, it, it did have a, a, a long-term effect on me and I still have some post-traumatic stress disorder. But um, uh, I've come through much better than most of my uh, colleagues. But uh, almost everybody who went to Vietnam came back, changed people. Uh, but um, we haven't done much. Uh, we haven't learned from our mistakes. Or we, we don't seem to look back. Everybody's forgotten all about the Vietnam War and we're fighting new wars that are just like it, it seems to me. You've dedicated almost one third of the book out of the 304 pages, more than 100 pages to the military industrial complex or the octopus, as you'd call it. The revolving doors, the overpresence of mercenary lobbyists in Washington policy circles, the overpresence of dodgy think tanks fronting corporate agenda. You also caution us how a similar scenario is panning out in India. And your caution could not have been more timely because right now the think tank driven policy making is also peaking in India. And uh, you see think tanks practically ubiquitous everywhere from the policy circle to the media, opinion pages to many bureaucrats, ex-bureaucrats being drafted into as lobbyists. You've listed how this rise of octopus and think tanks matches the fall of public universities and civil society and faith group and how it will shrink policy spaces and policy concerns. I could not agree more. There's so much in the book that I disagree with, but just for this military-industrial complex expose, I'm going to heavily recommend your book. Tell us why do you think we Indians should be scared and should care about this think tank takeover of policymaking in India? Yes, it's not just think tanks. It's also big law firms and consulting firms. Uh, the actor George Clooney was just in town in, in Washington last week and had a, made a public statement about how small countries hire these uh, law firms and lobbying firms and uh, also think tanks. Uh, I mean, they, they give them money, but they really make our foreign policy more than the Congress or than the State Department or than the traditional uh, avenues of formulating foreign policy. 
So in the formulation of foreign policy, the way it's supposed to be done, there's supposed to be congressional hearings, there's supposed to be input from the State Department's policy planning. But uh, like the new India-US nuclear deal was done almost entirely in, uh, behind closed doors in uh, some big law firms and, and uh, consulting firms where they in turn raise money from, um, uh, from interest groups and they give that money to members of the House and Senate. So the new Indian ambassador uh, and the new uh, Pakistani ambassador, the very first thing they do is they hire three or four of these big firms for a million dollars a year. Your book and actually that, talks about the Manmohan Singh government paying a million dollars to lobbyists in Washington, D.C. for the civil nuclear deal. And, and you're not pretty approving of that. Pardon? What did you say? I said your book actually discusses about Manmohan Singh government paying $1 million of taxpayers' money to the lobbyists in Washington and your disapproval of that route of policymaking. Yes, I disapprove, and it's our fault. Uh, Washington, D.C. is about the only capital in the world where embassies have to hire lobbyists. Uh, in many countries, it's forbidden. Uh, but if, you, if, if your ambassador to uh, England or Russia, they don't do that. Uh, but we have a sea of money in our, it's a form of corruption, and uh, I'm going to support the 28th Amendment, which would re revise a, a Supreme Court decision here that allows unlimited amounts of money to be given. But anyway, that's a problem that we have. But India, it's an impoverished nation. I'm sorry that India has to hire uh, very expensive lobbyists to represent their cause. But each ambassador does. It's not just one administration, but uh, each administration does and they are doing it right now today. So uh, you've also discussed about corruption and as you know in India it's our everyday living reality. It is gnawing at the body politic of India. You refused a bribe and didn't even think it was a bloody big deal. Walter Cronkite, one of the greatest journalists ever in the world, ha has called you a national hero on CBS. Please tell our listeners why you were a national hero for Cronkite. Well, uh, I don't really consider myself a, a, a hero, but uh, I did. I was once in a situation that I describe in my book where I turned down a, 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 a bribe and uh, made a very, uh, I did all the right things about it. And uh, I just saw the former FBI director the other day and he still said that, uh, and, and Alan Dershowitz uses me as an example in his classes and so forth, that you can say no. But... Um, the point I'm making is that uh, no, but can you tell no, no? Can you tell the listeners about what was this particular bribe or proposition made to you, and how naturally and organically you turned it down? I'm well, sure uh, our listeners will uh, be inspired. Uh, yes, uh, and this is a bit. Uh, this sounds a bit self-serving, but uh, other people have said this. Not, and you've not written me. you've written a book in first person uh, singular, Senator Pressler. I'm sure a bit of self-serving will do. Yes, uh, but uh, back in those days. Uh, uh, you could uh, you would meet with uh, PACs and so forth in different places and um, to raise money for campaigns. And a lot of it's a very legitimate money. But there's some illegitimate money that in those days they wanted, you could introduce a bill to bring uh, citizens into the United States. You can't do that anymore. One result, it was called the Abscam Investigation. And uh, there, there were several, several, to my amazement, seven or eight members of Congress who... Uh, went to jail and about 20 who took money, but the, the others had some legal excuse. But it was rather astounding that people would take uh, 50,000 of cash and going up to 
450000 in cash. So we have a corrupt system also. Now, our system is more legalized corruption today. I mean, the, the same money is probably being given, but it's being given in political action committees or in... Uh, so uh, we also, I, I always tell India not to be so self-critical because a lot of uh, the uh, so-called Western countries uh, have the same amount of money flowing around, but it's done in a, in, a, in a legalized forum. But in any event, I was for a day or two or three considered a national hero of sorts. And I don't, <laughs> I can't imagine you can be a hero for turning down a bribe, but Walter Cronkite thought it was a very uh, amazing thing on tape and uh, so forth. So, but I think it's, it's been largely forgotten uh, now, but um, uh, every now and then somebody says, well, you're the guy that I saw you on TV turning down a bribe. So and, new, uh, News Laundry is actually a media watch platform. So what Walter Cronkite says does mat- matter to us. And a lot of our listeners are also media watchers, which is why that story is important. Let's talk Pressler Amendment. What is Pressler Amendment? Tell us the salient features. Take us through the bipartisan nature of the amendment with your friend, Democratic Senator Glenn. Talk to me about the challenges, the alliances you forged, the final passage of the amendment, and how your amendment impacted the $3.2 billion aid and defense assistance to Pakistan. And you have exactly three minutes to do this. Okay. Well, everybody says they're against the proliferation of nuclear arms, but uh, within our government, the octopus, that is the military-industrial lobby, is so strong that they circumvented our amendment and got weapons to Pakistan anyway. Uh, but George H.W. Bush did enforce the Presser Amendment for several years, and it did cut off aid. But the the octopus here, what I call the octopus in Washington, uh, was working to circumvent that. So they over there at the Pentagon, the military industrial state and, and what I call the octopus, they just keep going regardless of who's in office. And uh, so, uh, but we did slow down the spread of nuclear weapons. I believe that if we had enforce the Pressler Amendment, we would not have nuclear weapons in either Pakistan or India today. But once it, once Pakistan went forward, India was forced to, and we're on this road now. And there's all this sanctimonious talk about, oh, we shouldn't have nuclear weapons in Korea or in Iran and so on and so forth. But Pakistan is the worst place to have them. And they're there, and they're, and we've, we've got a real problem on our hands, and India's got a bigger problem. And, and so the Pressler Amendment, it, it, I say in my book, it should have been called the Glenn Amendment because Senator John Glenn did just as much work on it as I did. But it was it was known as the Pressler Glenn Amendment to uh, in our code of things here. And it became known just as the Pressler Amendment. Uh, but uh, it did shut off aid to Pakistan for a period of years when it was enforced. It should have been enforced longer. Then, much to my amazement, Bill Clinton came into office and he essentially uh, reversed it and began to work for its repeal. I could never figure out why, but I think uh, Bill Clinton, and uh, he's a friend of mine, but I think that he was planning to have his foundation and he gets all this money from everywhere for his foundation. And he was laying the groundwork uh, to uh, be sure of that. The uh, uh, Both parties are in on, uh, but I was very disappointed that the Clinton-Gore administration was uh, didn't didn't help enforce the Pressler Amendment. I said to Al Gore once, I thought you guys were for non-proliferation, and he just kind of shrugged his shoulders. Well, it's this octopus, this military-industrial state. It's all this money from the arms companies that uh, go to build arms and more arms, and we're in it uh, up to our ears right now. 
and so is India now. And maybe by uh, maybe we don't have a choice. We have to keep people safe, uh, and we have to be anti-terrorists and so forth. But a lot of the money that we're spending are for duplicative forms of World War II type uh, weapons, and uh, it just uh, we, we have not really been against the spread of nuclear weapons. Can you tell in a few minutes the uh, treatment Presley Amendment got under Ronald Reagan, under Bill Clinton, and in the leadership of George W. Bush Jr.? Well, it got bad treatment uh, because they basically circumvented. Now, there are a lot of ways you can get around. Like we thought we had a black and white amendment. John Glenn said that that amendment was black and white. Uh, it said no aid to Pakistan if Pakistan develops a nuclear weapon. So it was kind of the test. If we meant what we were, we were saying, uh, this was the one time we had a chance to prove it, uh, and that's why there are nuclear weapons in North Korea or Iran or you name it, uh, all over the place. Because, in fact, just the opposite: the octopus wants to spread nuclear weapons, and the octopus here, uh, our internal military-industrial state, wants to sell arms all over the world, and is doing so. And I say that the India-U.S. nuclear agreement is mostly an arms sale deal, not not of nuclear uh, materials, although that could be included. But uh, everybody says, oh, but it's not about food, it's not about cleaner air, it's not about uh, uh, prosperity for the Indian people. It's about uh, nuclear materials. And uh, that is very uh, distressing to me. Now, I noticed that in the, the, the prime minister was here in Washington just a couple of weeks ago and uh, met with President uh, Trump. And the subject of the India-US nuclear agreement didn't seem to come up, uh, which uh, surprised me, but it's kind of been dropped almost. And that's because it was made in these law firms and consulting firms and not made through the normal processes in each country we'll, where it goes. We'll talk, about, we'll talk about this civil nuclear deal in uh, detail later. Uh, you also undertook a South Asian tour to India, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka when the uh, Bajpayee regime was in power in India. You were hero, public hero over here. You were public enemy number one in Pakistan. Nawaz Sharif, who's also the current prime minister, said he does not have time for every Tom, Dick, and Larry. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about that trip and the yes, absolutely I, opposing uh, receptions you got? Yes, I got a very cool reception in Pakistan. All, all my meetings were canceled when I arrived there, but I had a warm reception in uh, India. But uh, I like both India and Pakistan, the people, but the government of Pakistan and the ISI has been dupl duplicitous and not candid with me or with anybody. And uh, they have not been a reliable ally of the United States. And we seem to go down the same, the same road over and over again. And uh, that is, uh, uh, that is uh, 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 most unfortunate. We just don't seem to learn our lesson. So uh, just changing course, this is the perfect segue to another part of your book, where you call the nuclear bomb in Pakistan or in Middle East, West Asia as the Islamic bomb. Your critics will say, and I'm being the devil's advocate here, this coupling of a nuclear warhead with religion, this is very incendiary in these current times. By that logic, our warheads will be Hindu or secular bomb, and your American nuclear warheads, almost 5,000 of them, which can blow the world many times over and perhaps give a pyrotechnic show to Mars and neighboring solar systems, 
will be Judeo-Christian bombs. Uh, what is the, I mean, can you tell our listeners uh, why you're making that pr provocative statement and linking, coupling religion with nuclear warheads? What is the point being made? Well, back in the days when we started on this crusade in the late 1970s, there was talk of getting an, an Islamic bomb that would be passed around among the uh, countries that were majority Islam. Uh, so, but uh, in retrospect, that might have been a bit unfair to base it, uh, but those countries were working together and Pakistan sold themselves. They said, we need to have the bomb because we would be an Islamic state with, with the bomb and, and one day and, and, and they felt strongly. So, um, uh, that is what, uh, of course, now everything has changed and there's enough nuclear bombs around to, to do almost anything. You know, uh, I would like to, in the future, write a novel about how some of the nuclear materials in Pakistan could be carried out in a pickup truck, uh, certainly to India, but also they could be taken, I have this one scenario where they could be taken to Vietnam and then shipped in a shoe, uh, uh, they ship all those shoes from Vietnam, they sell them in the, in the U.S. and uh, sneak, it, sneak it on one of those ships. But there could be a lot of uh, nuclear bombs distributed. They're not that big, uh, and the small ones can be carried in a pickup truck. And uh, I'm just very worried about the attitude, the consistent attitude of the Pakistani government to keeping their commitments. They have been, uh, they have been duplicitous, uh, dishonest, and, and, and they're not a reliable ally of the United States. And we keep going back to them uh, with more arms, thinking we're going to persuade them. Um, uh, Ambassador uh, Haqqani has written a book about how the American ambassador used, used to come in with a list of weapons to the Pakistani president, promising them these weapons if they would do X and Y, and they never did X and Y. But you, but, do, you do think coupling this religion with warhead is not the best thing to do in our current times, right? Um, I would say uh, no, no. It's 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 not the not entirely religious, but I do think we have to be aware that there is a segment of Islam terrorists that is uh, basically a challenge, a threat to the security of India and to the United. Now that doesn't mean all Muslims are. I'm not saying that, but there seems to be a uh, Islamic terrorist, and uh, and that is kind of what the basis for ISIS was, which was sort of a religious basis. But I certainly wouldn't hold that accountable to all Muslims. We have a lot of Muslims living in the United States. And you do, three, and three you do understand, generation. you do understand when the postscript of uh, geopolitics will be written, American contribution to Islamic terror will also be written about and is being currently written about. You have been pretty openly critical about the military-industrial complex shadow, long shadow on policy making. So I would presume your critique will also extend to the American contribution to uh, their deepening democracy, their failed deepening democracy project and the, uh, the unleashing of terror that's happened, including the Islamic terror and their contribution, their authorship into that, right? Yes, well, in my book, I'm critical of, the, of my home government first in that yes. we're sort of abandoning, abandoning the way we make policy. We, uh, yes. uh, and uh, so uh, we have turned this over to law firms and consulting firms behind closed doors. 
and not not followed our traditional open democratic procedures. So, so that's that's yes. actually a fantastic point you make, and it absolutely echoes in India because if we are saying sunshine is the best disinfectant, then the more public policy discourses happen in the main street, in the main street where you and I are living our lives, I think it'll be way more important rather than the closed secret shrouded spaces that policy making is happening. So I think that's that's a great takeaway from your uh, book. Um, let's go, let's change course. Okay. Let's go back to the civil nuclear deal that you're a big supporter of, the Indo-US civil nuclear deal. You have shared your travels across the Indian subcontinent, your pain at looking at the inaccess to electricity by many Indians and the absolute inaccess. Even there was a power cut in Infosys when you were the board member of Infosys, you talk about that. So I come from my home state is Orissa, which is an Eastern Indian state and it's one of the poorest states. It has it is an electricity surplus state with the lowest per capita electricity access. But in the run-up to the 2015 Paris COP, the Climate Change Summit, Amartya Sen wrote a stinging piece about why people should not be, especially nuclear lobbyists, should not be allowed to reinvent nuclear as a clean energy source, considering the kind of tragedies we have seen in Chernobyl and TEPCO. And one of the things that Indian civil nuclear deal has been criticized for, other than the shrouded secrecy and not having public policy conversation around it, has been the absolutely diluted safeguards. We are, you and I are talking at a time, this is the 33rd anniversary of the largest industrial disaster in the entire world, completely man-made, the Bhopal gas tragedy, which killed 25,000 people. Safeguards is an absolute non-negotiable for us. So when you, in your book, say that people who are stalling the civil nuclear deal between India, India and US are pesky irritants, you're actually undermining people who have real concerns, real fears about diluted safeguards and why people in Jaitapur, in Kundankulam do not want a nuclear plant in their backyard without any safeguards. What do you have to say about that? Well, uh, there certainly should be safeguards. And I have my concerns. Uh, I do think that if we could have this nuclear deal, so it would be sure that it's used for producing electricity for uh, people and if it could reduce uh, pollution. Uh, and, and we will always be uh, concerned, but France has operated these nuclear plants safely for many years. And uh, it's my personal feeling that with safeguards, they ca it, it can be done. And there's just such a need in Delhi in particular with the pollution to find some alternative way. Now I know that you're doing a good job in your country with solar power and maybe, maybe it's more appropriate through our democratic uh, institutions on both sides that we shift solar power, but it's hard to get enough solar power to run industrial engines and so forth. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, I think the, uh, the basic idea is a good one if India wants it, because you can't force it on people. Uh, I have predicted that it probably will not come to fruition because it hasn't really been worked through. As you say, people are not assured of safeguards. There weren't enough hearings held. Yes. We, have to, we would have to get the support of the churches yeah. and get the support 
of um, uh, state governments. You've actually uh, talked about the importance of faith groups, public universities, and uh, the rise of military industrial complex and the fall of public universities. That's actually a very important point you make. It's almost prophetic. Um, we have to wrap this up. Uh, my final question, actually on behalf of your skeptics again, for a Vietnam War veteran, didn't you ever have that moment of epiphany to become a complete anti-war activist, a peacenik? The reason why I'm saying this is Jeremy Corbyn, the current Labour leader in the UK, was accused by the Tories as a dangerous pacifist, an unrelenting pacifist. After the Manchester bombing, after the London attacks, he did not change his speech. He did not other the Muslims or the migrants. He did not talk about border control. He did not talk about Islamophobia. And the voting outcome of the June election showed that the youth came out in hordes to vote for Corbyn's leadership. That pacifism, dangerous pacifism, unrelenting pacifism has a chance in this world of hate and wars. Connected to that particular point, I think your book will be criticized for as a classic case of U.S. exceptionalism, especially when right now U.S. has 4,804 nuclear warheads in Wyoming, Arizona, in your neighboring state in North Dakota, in, under some of the most cavalier and irresponsible leadership, in some of the most unsafe conditions. We have a fantastic, inspirational U.S. lawmaker like you dedicating his energy time and three-term Senate to disarm our subcontinent instead of disarming his own home country. So my final question on behalf of your critics would be, why aren't you a dangerous, unrelenting pacifist like Corbyn? And why were you focused on denuclearizing our part of the world instead of your own country? Okay, well, a very good question. Uh, actually, my voting record, uh, I, I was one that was quite critical of military, of the continued military buildup. But I'm not a pacifist uh, in the sense that I believe we do have real threats in uh, terror and so forth. But, but the way we go about fighting that are not, uh, are not so good. There's a lot of misunderstanding. But our country has been, um, has the responsibility has fallen to it for, to keep a certain semblance of world order. And that is not fun. Now, in looking back in history, everybody has made a saint of John F. Kennedy. But John F. Kennedy is the one who ordered the uh, assassination of the president of Vietnam and took him in one of the U.S. tanks and shot him. Uh, and um, uh, John F. Kennedy uh, ordered the huge missile buildup and he ordered the big buildup in Vietnam. And there wasn't any indication that he would have ever done anything other than build it up more. So the point I'm making is that our country has been in a war mode we are uh, run by a military industrial state, but, we're, but we feel threatened and our people want to be safe. So it's a real dilemma. And uh, I don't think we need to do nearly as much. I don't think we need that many nuclear warheads. Uh, and I have said that our Pentagon budget should be reduced substantially, which caused me in part, uh, that's part of the reason I was defeated when I ran for a fourth term. Yes, in, 2014. In yeah. Um, uh, but uh, so I am I am not a pacifist, but I believe that uh, the military industrial state has far too much power. We're spending far too much on the military. And I've been a part of the uh, Nun Luger reducing the uh, military warheads, at least the ones in South Dakota are now all gone in, in, in my state. But uh, we still uh, have several and we feel that we need some. We have people like the fellow in North Korea who would like to shoot a missile at the United States if he could, at least that's what he says. 
So this keeps our people scared, and uh, we have to go forward with a certain level of national defense, just as India is caught in that trap over there right next to Pakistan. And the poor people of India, the impoverished people of India, have to buy arms from the United States. And I feel so and bad. And Israel. And lest we forget Israel also. Um, Mr. Pressler, it's been an absolute pleasure, especially for you taking all the questions chin up and not backing off on any answer. I wish your book all success. I would recommend your book for the simple reason that it has a graphic takedown of the octopus, the military-industrial complex. And I found your struggles and triumph over speech defects, stuttering. I'm actually impressed that you do not stutter, whereas in your book you've written that you do stutter. And one of our selling points was, okay, let's talk to a senator who can stutter but still give an audio interview. So I think it's fantastic. So you're... Your triumph over stuttering, birth speech defects, humble background are absolutely inspiring. And for that reason itself, I'll be recommending the book. That was Larry Pressler, Indophile, three times U.S. Senator, first Vietnam War veteran in the U.S. Senate, board member of Infosys, and forever committed to public service in all his avatars. Also author of Neighbors in Arms by Penguin Random House India that I do recommend. I also commend the writing style, which is first person singular, giving a sense of immediacy and intimacy, which is very rare in foreign policy geopolitics literature. Good job to the editor team of Penguin Random House. Thank you for listening to NL Interviews. A big thank you to Kartik Nijhavan, our producer, our desk editor, Vivek Gopal, for making me read the book. This is Birad Swain signing off. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes, and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel.